Welcome to 13, the podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming the Donald M. and Constance H. Rebar Professor in Humanities and Professor of English, Peter Balakian. Professor Balakian is the author of eight books of poems, including Ozone Journal, which won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. Other collections include Ziggurat and June Tree, New and Selective Poems from 1974 to 2000. His prose books include Vice and Shadow, Selected Essays on Lyric Imagination, Poetry, Art, and Culture. The Burning Tigress, The Armenian Genocide and America's Response, which won the 2005 Raphael Lemkin Prize and was a New York Times notable book and a New York Times and national bestseller. His memoir, Black Dog of Fate, won the 1998 PEN Martha Albrand Prize for the Art of the Memoir and was a best book of the year for the New York Times, the LA Times, and Publishers Weekly and was issued in a 10th anniversary edition. He is the co-translator of Gregoris Balakian's Armenian Golgotha. Did I say that correctly? A memoir of the Armenian genocide from 1915 to 1918, uh, which was also a Washington Post book of the year. Balakian has been a longtime advocate for recognition of the Armenian genocide of World War I, in which the then Ottoman Empire murdered somewhere around one million ethnic Armenians. To this day, the Turkish government denies their responsibility in the extermination and removal of the entire Armenian population of Turkey. Yet 31 countries have now recognized the events as genocide, and for the first time ever, in 2021, President Biden officially recognized the genocide on behalf of the United States. Professor Balakian is the recipient of many awards, prizes, and civic citations, including a Presidential Medal and the Moses Koronazi Medal from the Republic of Armenia, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, the Emily Clark Botch Prize for Poetry from the Virginia Quarterly Review, the Spendlove Prize for Social Justice, Tolerance, and Diplomacy, and Anid Literary Prize. He has appeared widely on national television and radio, including PBS NewsHour, 60 Minutes, ABC World News, Tonight, uh, PBS, Charlie Rose, CNN, C-SPAN, NPR, Fresh Air, and more. Professor Balakian earned a Bachelor of Arts from Bucknell University, his master's from NYU, and his PhD from Brown University. Professor Balakian, welcome to 13. Thank you, Dan. So I always like to start with a little background uh, whenever we talk to a professor who hasn't been on the program before. And I'm very curious about your path uh, to becoming a poet and a professor. So I guess what led you down the road that you have traveled? Well, for me, uh, falling in love with literature and writing poems as an undergraduate at Bucknell was really the turning point in my life. Um, uh, I worked with a wonderful mentor, poet, novelist, playwright, Jack Wheatcroft. And uh, during those years as a college kid, writing poems uh, with a lot of passion 
bad as those poems no doubt were, uh, they were the uh, kind of the beginning of a way of life for me. So uh, writing started around age 21, and uh, the rest was, uh, has been an unfurling uh, journey. And um, the love of literature and language, history and culture, that also took over my undergraduate life, uh, led me to want to study literature in a more formal way. And so my, my path to graduate school and the various uh, long papers, dissertation on the American poet Theodore Retke, uh, working with marvelous scholars along the way, Hyatt Wagoner, David H. Hirsch among them, uh, were crucial to my training uh, as a scholar. And the two worlds worked well for me, the scholarly life and my life as a poet. Um, sometimes they intersect, and many times you keep them apart. So um, that's how it began. Uh, a rather, uh, for me, a rather great tribute to college education. Things happen during those years, and they change your life. And much of your work touches upon the Armenian genocide. And I think it's important for our listeners who may not be aware of that history, if you could kind of provide a little, I guess, snapshot of, of what happened and then how you got involved in um, working um, to have the governments of the, the world recognize it? Well, you know, first I would say, um, you know, a writer's task is to dig into rich material. Uh, I, I got interested in the Armenian past because I was interested in the experience of my grandparents' generation um, I had no political goals. I was just trying to find rich material, kind of deposits of language, um, th dimensions of culture and history that uh, prompted and excited the imagination and, and allowed me to uh, get hold of language, rhythms, images, that, that's the bottom line for a writer. Um, the, the journey into the Armenian past has been one part of my work as a poet. It's, not, it's just one part of it. It's not what I do uh, in the uh, other vectors on my poetry wheel. But it's been an important part of it. It's uh, energizing. It continues to energize me and uh, allow me to explore memory, uh, trauma, as it's been transmitted to me through the generations in my family, uh, trauma, memory, uh, history. Uh, history is a big part of the poet's enterprise, um, at least for certain poets, certain kinds of poets. That, that tradition for me well, would include poets like Yeats, Auden, 
Adrian Rich, Robert Lowell, um, Robert Hayden, Gwendolyn Brooks. That's kind of the, the vein of poetics I've traveled down. Um, in, the, in the very contemporary era, Derek Walcott, Seamus Heaney, um, poets who take on historical dimensions. So the Armenian dimension was what I felt uh, an intense closeness to. The political piece of it evolved over years. Um, I'm just one of hundreds of scholars who've been writing about this history. Um, and I started writing about the history of the Armenian Genocide as a poet. And then it led me to a kind of memoir, a coming-of-age story that involved the uh, experience of my especially my genocide survivor grandmother, uh, Nafina, a bastardization of the, the name Athena. Uh, Athena Shekerlamejan, who was born in Diyarbakir, southeast Turkey, Ottoman Empire, historic Armenia, around 1890. Um, she was the only survivor of her family. All her brothers, sisters, uh, her parents were uh, massacred in uh, August of 1915. Um, and um, she and her two infant daughters, toddler daughters, uh, um, survived a, a long, arduous journey that ended up in the USA, in northern New Jersey in 1920. And my mother, uh, who's still living today in her mid-90s, was the fourth, fourth child and fourth daughter of, of my grandmother's in her second marriage. Her first husband was killed uh, by the Turkish um, killing squads in 1915. She remarried in New Jersey, in Patterson, in 1920. Uh, so that story has been a rich story. My grandmother's story has been a rich story for my, uh, my, my work. Black Dog of Fate deals a lot with her story. Uh, I came to write a, a history that, uh, called The Burning Tigris, as in the river that flows through northern Mesopotamia. And that story... Uh, was uh, that history was an American story about rescue and relief? Uh, the 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 American uh, cultural and and social and ethical response to the massacres of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire from the mid 1890s through the end of World War One is a really interesting American story. Uh, uh, an early chapter in America's international, the beginning of America's international era. And I had uh, an interesting time writing, writing that. And so these spokes off my wheel uh, have uh, connected with that history 
When President Biden became the first U.S. president to acknowledge the Armenian genocide on April 24th, 2021, you wrote in an op-ed in the Washington Post that stated, no American president until Biden has had the courage to use the word genocide for fear of angering Turkey's leaders and damaging relations with a powerful ally, even one with an abominable human rights record. So why was it so important for the U.S. to recognize the genocide, and has that recognition impacted U.S.-Turkish relations as a result? You know, the Turkish refusal to deal with its history uh, of the extermination of the Armenians is emblematic of Turkey's entire authoritarian, repressive, uh, non-democratic government today and for the past century. Uh, so the denial, and that's the proper term to use, that's the term that scholars use when talking about a uh, a nation's refusal to acknowledge its historical past truthfully. The denial of the Armenian genocide has just been a has been Turkish foreign policy. Turkey's been terrified of the reparations and the consequences of its actions, and so the acknowledgement issue is not about it's it's really not about adjudicating history. The governments don't do that, nor do they need to do it. Scholars have done that for decades. The governmental resolutions are redresses to Turkish government denialism. They are uh, a kind of in-your-face Turkey uh, reprisals, symbolic reprisals. And this enrages the Turkish government, because it's not a nation that has any tradition for critical evaluation. Uh, China, Syria, Turkey, over the course of the last four decades, have been the leading countries on the human rights watch list of uh, abuses, torture, imprisonment of journalists, uh, censorship. So. Turkey's record is 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 uh, you know well known, and longstanding, and uh, governments one by one were persuaded that it made sense to stand up to Turkish denial, uh, send a message to Ankara, that the attempts and the campaign to rewrite history is destructive, um, unethical and is a continuation of violence in some way. As scholars of genocide note, the denial of genocide is the final stage of genocide hmm. because it seeks to demonize the victims and rehabilitate the perpetrators. <clears throat> the U.S. has its own struggles with its violent uh, past, its criminal pasts, Native American genocide, the history of slavery and Jim Crow, uh, we know that even in democracies, it's not easy to deal with dark, tragic pasts. So in authoritarian societies, you can imagine <clears throat> that the idea isn't really alive. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful people in Turkey who work very hard at high cost for their own country's uh, future. 
and for their hope of a democratic uh, Turkey. So the Armenian genocide history has been caught up in that kind of um, denialism, and therefore these statements that come from heads of state and other nations have some meaning. Uh, has it? Uh, the U.S. was uh, afraid. It's a sad story to say so. Afraid to um, stand up to the Turkish state uh, because of our Middle Eastern pol uh, policies and our strategic alliances with Turkey that have to do with all kinds of uh, foreign policy uh, programs in the Middle East and military alliances. But finally, uh, we, we found a president of high integrity and high ethical uh, stature in President Biden who shrugged his shoulders and made it clear that this is a, a silly game to keep playing. Mm. Uh, there are dozens of countries around the world that have passed these symbolic redress resolutions, and so now the U.S. did so as well. I don't know how it's affected U.S.-Turkish relations. Probably not much. <laughs> Turkey's uh, <clears throat> Turkey's threats are hollow, so life goes on. But it hasn't affected Turkey's uh, official state perspectives or policies <clears throat> on this particular past. So we'll just have to see how that plays out in another era. The title poem of your book, Ozone Journal, which won the Pulitzer in 2016, is a sequence of 54 short sections, each a poem in itself. Recounting your memory of excavating the bones of Armenian genocide victims in the Syrian desert with a crew of television journalists in 2009. Why do you think that work was so effective, ultimately leading to the recognition by the Pulitzer Committee? Well, Dan, let me clarify a couple things here. Um, the, the journey into the Syrian desert is only one of four threads in that long poem. The other three threads deal with the erosion of the atmosphere and the beginning of climate change, the AIDS epidemic, and an exploration of cool jazz, a la Miles Davis in particular, uh, so so the, really the heart of the poem is more about uh, the mind and consciousness of a young poet in the 1980s who's living in Manhattan and struggling with a bomb bombardment of complicated social realities, uh, the ones I noted. <clears throat> and, and this character uh, is recently divorced and is uh, a, sing a single parent to a young child. So it's an interesting story. The, the Syrian Bones piece is kind of both a back and front story, only allowing the, um, uh, the voice or the pr protagonist to tell the story of his own past in the 1980s. And then that poem is only one <clears throat> section of a longer book, uh, I have no idea what the, uh, you know, what the Pulitzer jury, they made their statement and said <laughs> what they did. 
uh, I suppose, in the prize citation. But I hope, I assume my whole book, you know, had three sections that were interesting. And I also hope that the invent, you know, I hope there is an interest in my my own uh, obsession with the long form, mm. which is multi-sectioned, multi-sequenced poem of 40 to 50 sections. I had one of these multi-sectioned, multi-sequenced poems in my previous book of 2010 called Ziggurat. I had one in Ozone Journal, and I will have one more in my new book, which is out um, next month, called No Sign. So I'm interested in this long poem form, and it's a, it's a form that is sequential and made of fragmentary lyric pieces, and the pieces have to be woven in a certain way so that the time-space lyric uh, sequentialness works. So form here matters, you know, in, in my own sense of what I was doing in that poem. Uh, you know, the, the bones in the desert, I, I play their role in it. What attracted you to the, what, or I guess what does attract you to the long form over you know, other types of poetry. I guess what what has really uh, sunk its hooks into you? Well, of course, I do write compressed lyric poems as well. I, I, I like short lyric poems. They're very, they're very essential to any poet's uh, modality. But the, the long form, the multi-sectioned poem gives you more space allows you to pursue uh, a, a, a form of a story through fragments, uh, through concatenated fragments that move uh, sometimes like uh, lyric cuts, uh, filmically perhaps. And I, I find that the uh, fusion of compressed lyric fragments concatenated in a bigger time-space field is a very satisfying form. I know I have a poet on the show when concatenated comes out. I don't think we've had a guest say that yet. Connected. <laughs> no, I like it. Connected. <laughs> um, Poetry is often considered to be a very personal form of self-expression. I'm curious, do you uh, have anxiety before a new work comes out? Do you, do you have uh, concerns that people may misinterpret it? Or um, is it something now that you've published enough that it, 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 that doesn't happen? Or you, you just you hope people take what they will from the work? Well, I don't, I don't think any artist in any genre can, should, you know, it, it writes for professional reviewers or critics. I think a any artist has to pursue their vision and the materiality of their uh, materials. So let, me, let me back up. The... Um, the 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 nature of their materials 
for a poet, that's language. And so it's a, you know, the particular kind of language that you're pursuing is, is your goal. What can you do with that language? And how can you make a form that is going to be, uh, for you, satisfying, energizing, probing, that simply satisfies your sense of being in the world? There really isn't anything else that matters. Um, I mean, sure, we all hope that critics and reviewers get what we do, and that's nice. You know, that's lovely. I don't mean to say it's not, but it isn't really doesn't really um, motivate one in any way. What you just want to pursue your vision of your particular uh, uh, obsession and immersion in your materials as an artist. You know, if you're working with paint, you're working with glass, you're working with metal, uh, you're working with musical notations that translate into sounds as a composer and as a poet, you work with the musical notations of words in particular forms. And, you know, as I, as I always, you know, I'm telling my students, you have to think in phrases. You have to think in rhythmic pulsations. You have to think in lines, lines and stanzas, commas and dashes, pulsations and phrases. That's our world. Out of that comes some wonderful things from the beginning of poetry in the West, uh, starting with Greek lyric poems uh, to today, you know, we, we can chart how poems have defined human beings and culture and history. I always remind my students that <clears throat> poems take us back to, or poems are embedded in the origins of lyric speech, song, chant, prayer, and dithram. Poems are never separable from those uh, essential and primary forms of human consciousness, linguistic lyric human consciousness. And, and so... <clears throat> Poets are part of that. <clears throat> Whenever we practice our art, meaning whatever period of history uh, we're plopped down on the earth and work on our art, we're part of that chain, that continuum. Um, so that's what, you know, I answer to that. Um, and uh, I wish that I mean, I think, uh, I'm sure I speak for many when I say that it is unfortunate that poems are not read as much or in the quantity that fiction is read or nonfiction in our time, that for, 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 for many complicated reasons, books of poems um, are, are more marginal than they should be because there's so many great books of poems coming out in the USA alone every year, and those books should be as absolutely central to the uh, 
production and promotion and visibility of literature that the other prose uh, forms are. So my, I think my, my, my interest in, in my, my response to your question is also readers out there, you know, pay attention. The poets, poets in the USA are doing a lot of exciting, rich, dynamic things, and, 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 and they're making language uh, that uh, is not only rich and meaningful and gives human depth to experience, but also tells us about our time and who we are and what we're struggling with and can help us struggle and deal with uh, the complexity of life in uh, the third decade of the 21st century. That's that's a great segue to my next question where I was going to ask, uh, so who are the working poets today that you feel deserve more recognition or that more people should read? Or who are you reading now? You know, if I were to tell, if I were to tell uh, listeners to, uh, or if I were to recommend to our listeners a diet of poets starting sort of in the mid-20th century, uh, I would suggest that everyone read Robert Lowell's Life Studies, Sylvia Plath's Ariel, Frank O'Hara's Lunch Poems, Adrian Rich's Diving into the Wreck, Gwendolyn Brooks's Selected Poems, Robert Hayden, Allen Ginsberg's Howell, coming down to some poets who are in the prime of their careers at the moment, Sharon Olds, her recent book, Odes, Yusuf Kumanyaka's Neon Vernacular, Lucille Clifton's selected poems, Louise Gluck's, so many of Louise Gluck's poems, uh, books of poems, uh, Robert Pinsky's The Figured Wheel, uh, I could add to this list by the dozens, sure. but uh, those poets, for starters, will give you uh, will give any reader a lot to work with. That's great, thank you. Um, so I, uh, I I'm curious too about your writing process. Um, where do you do most of your – do you have a place where you do most of your work? Do you write anywhere? I'm curious about how you develop your poetry. Is it something where, you know, you write and you revise that you're done or how do you know when you're done? Um, at what point does the does the poem seem finished? In one sense, my writing process is one long continuum the the energy for the poems you are drafting keeps going uh one is always working on something and drafts are beginnings i'm a poet who works through many many drafts over the course of whatever time it takes to feel the materials in this poem have been realized. Kind of bottom line, you have to realize the materials 
That means many, many things, but you have to realize those materials in a way that satisfy you. Um, it's a slow process with lots of rapid uh, phases to it so that the poem can undergo many, many revisions. Uh, it takes a long time to cook, but you're, but it's moving a lot over the course of weeks and months, a year or two. Um, most of my work these days is done in the early hours of the day, uh, in the morning. But writing is a process that's ongoing. So I'm somebody who will just work on drafts when I'm in a plane, on a train. Those are always uh, good places to work. There's motion. There's white noise. Mm. You're out of time. You're in a capsule. Um, like to revise things in any place or time. Doesn't matter. Although you do need blocks of silence. Writers all live in a, a studio. And uh, and I never take it for granted that I've been a very privileged, I've lived a very privileged life. And so much of that has to do with the privilege and happiness of being here in Hamilton, New York, teaching at Colgate and having uh, an enormous uh, amount of support for, for doing your work. It's what uh, the university has asked its faculty to do. Do your work and we'll support you as much as we can. And that's certainly been true in my experience. And uh, there is something very uh, positive about the small town uh, that has a kind of cushion of silence around it. Um, urban life is different than country campus life. Country campus life for me has been a very good environment to uh, work day in and day out while I'm doing my other uh, job uh, as a teacher. In teaching uh, writing poetry, I'm curious, uh, is it more about honing skills of students that possess some some skill or can a student who hasn't really done a lot of poetry before, can that be developed in a class uh, from the ground up? The wonderful thing about workshops is that they uh, allow students to Learn quickly. If a student is excited by the materials, in this case, lyric language, uh, intense emotional depth in a short form of writing called the lyric poem, uh, the student can make enormous growth in a quick time. Because every week in my workshop, every week we are um, taking on a new dimension uh, a new perspective, a new technique, uh, a new form. Uh, students are able to uh, encounter uh, the, uh, many of the processes of writing poems in a much more concentrated period of time than if they were trying to do this on their own. And so workshops in this way are tailor-made to allow students to grow quickly if it's in them, 
And a lot of students who've never written before, I should say, some students who've never written before discover they have a gift for this. Mm. And boy, do they get excited. It's like helping unearth it. It's, uh, it's a discovery. It's a revelation. That, hey, wow. It has to be pretty amazing. This, this, yeah. this may be for me. This may be for me. And that's what we're here for. When I, have, I do have wonderful students who've gone on to write. Nice. So I understand you have a new work coming out. Tell me about it. Uh, my my book due out in a month. What's the date? Uh, March 22 is the pub date. Very good. Title is No Sign. Uh, as I was mentioning to you, um, there is one more multi-sectioned, multi-sequenced poem. Also with the same title as the book, like Ozone Journal had the title poem, Ozone Journal, No Sign has a title poem, No Sign. And in this poem, a couple who've been estranged for years uh, meet up again uh, on the on a, on an old landscape they knew well, the Palisades cliffs of the New Jersey side of the Hudson River, and it's a poem as dialogue, with he and she speaking, and uh, they their and their dialogue twines a conversation about the geological history of the earth and the future of the planet in an age of climate crisis. The dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, the tragedy of the Vietnam War, those, those three threads are woven together and I know this all sounds dark and heavy, but there's humor and play and joy and sensuality and love and body and sex in this poem. So, you know, I don't want readers to be scared away. It's, <laughs> well, it's 45 sections, and I hope it's, uh, I hope it's pleasurable. Well, we are at question 13, and this is generally uh, – we usually ask something a little off the beaten path, but I figure uh, what better segue than to um, see if you would honor us with a short reading from the new book. I'd be happy to, Dan. All right. This is a poem called Yellow Lilies, and uh, it deals with um, poetry. Looking up, a galaxy is any star skidding into black. A black hole is my love. Who knows what's in the next cushion of air? What if a hole is just a Greek urn or Sarah's paint stick spiral? It's past midsummer and specks of light are wings of giant birds. I'll hang my torn soul on that. Take the flash of a star, the white line of a plane, hear the ocean of words hum blaring horn of wind. 
when I wake in gray light, black rocks, cardinals, yellow lilies, cumulonimbus. The grass is drying on me. A deer's eyes burn through the pines. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. So that was 13. Uh, thank you, Professor Balakian, for joining us today. Uh, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if any of our listeners have a question, feel free to send us a note at 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Mariama Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.